of the greatest things that I, I believe stand out in the leadership of Jesus as a preacher. Now, we know what the, the word preach means in the Greek. It simply means to proclaim. And Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God wherever he went. Uh, I want to give you this uh, six points right off the beginning, just so you can know where I'm going. I know sometimes that helps me when preachers give me all the points and then go back over them because I know where they're heading. Number one, Jesus preached outside. Jesus preached outside. Number two, Jesus' messages can be summed up in the two greatest commands, love God and love people. Jesus' messages can be summed up in the two greatest commands, love God and love people. Number three, Jesus' end goal was not conversions but disciples. Number three, Jesus' end goal was not conversion but disciples. Number four, Jesus rebuked cities, leaders, and people. Number four, Jesus rebuked cities, leaders, and people. Don't worry if you don't get them all. I'm definitely going over them. Number five, Jesus always promoted God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. Jesus always promoted God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. And number six, Jesus also demonstrated his message with signs and wonders. Jesus demonstrated his message with signs and wonders. Okay, I'm going to start reading through scriptures. If you can keep up with me, that's great. If not, I just have too many to keep saying, turn here, turn here. So I'm just going to start with number one. Jesus preached outside. Matthew 4.18 says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. My best guess is about 70 to 80% of Jesus' ministry was outdoors. That is my best guess. As studying the Gospels and writing on, you know, intensively about them, my best guess is about 80% of the time he was outside. The other 10%, he was in a temple or a synagogue, and roughly around 20%, he was inside people's homes. So you can see he spent the least amount of time in temples and synagogues. His most amount of time was outside in the marketplaces, on the streets, by the sea. And here you see in Matthew 18 that he goes by the sea and he calls Peter and Andrew. I want everyone to look up at me, please. Your ministry is not in this building. Your ministry is out on those streets. I want you to preach like Jesus. Don't expect after graduation for somebody to hand you a church, for someone to hand you a bunch of disciples. I know you're learning in church planting class right now all of the benefits of planting the church. They are numerous. The best way to build the kingdom of God right now is through church planting. And so you have to learn how to start your ministry with you and your family or just you and a few other disciples that God sends out with you. Jesus didn't even have anybody. You have to know how to go out here and make disciples. That's how you build the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I love SUM is because they teach you through the practical ministry and emphasize street ministry. I wonder how many today pastors can say that 80% of their ministry is out in the streets, in the community. I wonder how many can say that. I know even for myself, that's not even close The majority of my ministry is still inside this building. But it wasn't always like that. When I first started this church, the majority of my ministry was outside of this building. Oh, for the day to go back to that. What a challenge even to me today. And what a challenge to each and every one of you. You need to go outside and win souls, every single one of you. That's what it means to be a preacher. 
It's not grab this mic and let's preach to the other disciples. No, let's go out there and start preaching to the people. And that changes the whole definition of preaching. In our modern uh, day vernacular, what does preaching mean? Behind a pulpit with a microphone, now we see all these extra doodiddles like I did on Sunday mornings, PowerPoints, video illustrations, skits and dramas. But is that the way Jesus preached? No, did Jesus have a pulpit? Did Jesus even carry the Word of God with him? In one sense, he did. It was in his heart, but literally in his hands. Was it in his hands? No. So he didn't even say to people, turn here, look here. No, he just went out and said, this is what God says. It's in the Bible. It's in the Torah. Believe it or not, this is what it is. You have to be able to go out and do that. Adolfo, I want you to join us, please. Too many times you hide behind there like the wizard on the Wizard of Oz. We want you to come out from behind the curtain. Amen. Let's give it up for Adolfo for serving so often. Come on, you can do better than that. Give it up for Adolfo. I just really want to look at the preacher right now. Come on. What you want is to serve Christ like Jesus, right? Isn't that what you want? You want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. Now, what's the other thing you and I want? We want to be successful in ministry, don't we? Does anybody here want to fail in ministry? Does anybody here just want to preach to four and no more the rest of your life? Don't you see dreams and visions of multitudes and nations? Don't each and every one of you have a dream to change the world, miraculous signs and wonders? Don't you all have those expectations and desires in your heart to go out and change the world for Jesus? Well, you know how you do that, Cynthia? Is you go right out here and you start with the people around you. That is it. That's the first demonstration of preaching the gospel. I want to accent this. very strongly today because what we can become is so inclusive in this building and become so used to the habit of our temples and our churches that we think this was Jesus's method and it wasn't as much as I like the throwback for the 80s and all of our ministries doing these wonderful things to get people to come to us that was not Jesus's method Jesus's method was he went to them So we can do both, that's fine, but where should our majority of our focus and energy be on? Our evangelism. What we call evangelism, Jesus called church. Come on, what we call go out witnessing, Jesus called church. That was normal. What people call today church, Jesus called religion. Do me a favor, Nancy, kick it down about two or three degrees because it's already getting hot up in here for me. Amen. Come on, cool me down a little bit. I see somebody with a sweater on. Come on. Think about that when you and I go out witnessing. We think of it like, well, this is what I'm doing this week, or this is what I'm doing, you know, outside of my normal church. Thank God I can go back to Crossover. Thank God I can go back to SUM where there's other people that sing songs and love Jesus with me. Jesus said, I'm so happy to be out here because he said, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. He he said, I'm so happy to be out here. He found a normalcy in being out in the streets. It was normal for him to be out there. The example that comes to my mind is when I met a Polish Catholic out here in our streets, and he said to me, my priest would never stand out out on the corner and hand out flyers. And I said, your priest is not like Jesus then. Because Jesus went out on corners. Jesus was visible. I cannot wait. Because right now it's almost like, you know, like Pastor Joe, there he is. It's a, you know, storefront church. He's on the corner. I cannot wait till we have churches bigger than 90 to 100% of the churches in this city. I mean, I just can't wait till we have 1,000 members, 10,000 members, and they still see me standing out there on the corner. 
And they say, who's that? That's our pastor. That's, that's our leader. That's the elder of our ministry. There he is. There he is representing Christ. Representing Christ. No matter how big Jesus got, no matter how popular he got, no matter how many people loved him and wanted to be with him, he always was out on the streets. I want to challenge you to always be on the streets. Always. Always. Always be outside of this church preaching the gospel. Be on the streets, be in the high schools, be on college campuses, be in the downtown marketplaces. I mean, what would it be like? I mean, what would it be like for, for, for a person to be downtown in their suit on their lunch break and start handing out flyers and preaching like the way we preach here? Could you imagine how that would just blow people's minds? Can you imagine what that would be like, like Jasmine? Say she grows up in our ministry, she becomes a businesswoman, works downtown, like Adam's dad right down there in, in the downtown buildings. And just on their lunch break, there they are, dressed them in business attire. Someone met them out there, and they're just talking about Jesus. Hey, can we get a few moments of your time? It doesn't have to be on a speaker. It doesn't have to be with a big sign. It doesn't have to come with, with, with confrontation all the time. It doesn't have to come with, uh, you know, we're handing out free bottles of water and, and hot dogs. It can just be, I'm just out here proclaiming the kingdom of God. We live in a nation where we can do this legally. We should be inspired by those who do it illegally across the world. We have no excuse. Jesus preached outside. If you want to preach like Jesus, preach outside. Number two, Jesus' messages can be summed up in the two greatest commands, love God and love people. Matthew 12, 29 through 31, Jesus is asked what are the most important commands. He says it's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord is one, the, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And so if you were to sum up all of Jesus' messages, they always pointed back to loving God and loving people. Loving God and loving people. That's where they all pointed back to. Repentance was his first message he preached as a prophet to the people of Israel. And it was also his first message he always preached to a new group of people. Matthew 4.17 says, For that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. How do I know that Jesus continued to preach the message? Because it says, From that time on. So that means from that time on, he was always saying that. So if you hadn't heard that, he would say, hey, before I tell you about the Beatitudes, let me tell you about this. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, now let me teach you how to blessed are the merciful and all of that. So it was his first message that he actually preached. So if you were to ask Jesus, what was your first message? His first message was repentance. And if Jesus had never met you before, if you were the first time hearing Jesus, his first message to you would be repentance. But what does that fall under? Loving God. Loving God. How do we love God? By repenting of our sins, turning towards Him, serving Him, you know, living a holy life. Mark 1.15 says, that time has come, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the good news. You look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest sermon recorded in the Bible, 
And uh, there's different under, uh, ideas about this. Either he preached it all at one time or the writer of Matthew compiled them all together. Either one. It's the longest section of Jesus' preaching we have in the New Testament, Matthew 5 through 7. And the Sermon on the Mount can be summed up in those two categories. Here's how you love God. Here's how you love people. You don't murder people because you love them. You don't lust after them because you love them. If you have two shirts, give away one because you love them. If someone asks you to walk one mile, walk five because you love them. But also, be merciful because you're going to love God this way. You know, be pure in your heart because you'll see God. Blessed are the persecuted. So everything in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount can be summed up. Loving God, loving people. Then the second um, biggest sermon or longest sermon in, Jesus, in the New Testament from Jesus is to talk about the Holy Spirit in John 14 through 16. And once again, this can be summed up in how to love God and how to love people. But it's through the relationship of the Holy Spirit. So what should you preach about? How to love God and how to love people. Those should always be your messages. Preach what Jesus preached. You do not have to go to the television and find a series like Deal or No Deal. If you find those things, that's cute and cuddly. But all you have to do is just read your Bible and preach what Jesus preached. It is so simple. How could we as preachers, Lauren, ever run out of stuff to talk about? Because Jesus gave us all of his messages. It would be like at the end of this sermon, me giving you my notes, saying, now you go and preach it. You have the entire gospel, all the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Preach what Jesus preached. And understand that all those messages are always pointed towards loving God and loving people. Just think of any message that Jesus ever preached, and you'll have the understanding. What was it about? Loving God, loving people. It was always about that. Focus on that. Teach people that. If you want to preach like Jesus, always point people towards loving God and loving people. Number three, Jesus' end goal was not conversions, but disciples. Matthew four seventeen through 19, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Okay, so we heard that that was his message, but was his point just now you're forgiven of your sins, go about your way? No, keep reading. Verse 18, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. I cannot emphasize that enough. Jesus always put the call of people's ministry in the call of salvation. It was never just you come and get saved. Finished. Now you're done. You can go about your way. No, it was come, get saved, and go get people saved. So I think about, you know, like even in our Sunday morning service yesterday, people walking out while I'm preaching the gospel. And, and Jesus was saying to me, listen to me, Jesus said to me when I was back there, I was kind of looking at the cars pull in, in the back of the office, and, and the Lord just rebuked me, and he said, I didn't look for crowds, I looked for disciples. He said, I didn't look for crowds, I looked for disciples. And so while I'm preaching, one person gets up, nothing, no big deal, two people, I've never seen this many people get up in a long time in the middle of the service. And right as I'm talking towards Michael, I'm saying, Michael, a young man in our ministry, 14 years old, I say, here's how you can have a heart as a good Samaritan. You can give to missions. And I see this family get up, and they're walking out. And the moment they do that, as I'm talking, God just makes that word real. He says, I didn't look for crowds. I looked for disciples. 
He says, you're talking to Michael's spirit right now. You're changing his eternal destiny, showing him how to care for missionaries. But as that crowd was walking away, it was the greatest illustration of what Jesus went through all the time. He wasn't there to, meet, to, to please the crowds. He was there to make disciples. And being a disciple costs you something. Just think about that. Well, if I would have preached a half hour shorter, they would have stayed. If I wouldn't have challenged them, they would have stayed. Well, do we want a church that doesn't want to stay and be, not be challenged? Do you want a church like that, my friends? Do you want a church that only stays as long as it's convenient for them and never wants to be challenged? Do you want a church like that? Do you want a ministry like that? You have got to get it in your heart. You're not just seeking conversions. You're seeking disciples. What difference does it make, Sue Ellen, if the whole church is full, but they don't want to stay longer than a half hour for the message? To hell with that. What is that? Who in the, you know, who wants to go to war with toddlers? Who wants to go to war with babies in diapers? Now, I've said this example before, but for the sake of those who have never heard it and for this message on tape, I want you to listen to me. Imagine if we sent out to war right now babies in diapers. They would get slaughtered. They would get slaughtered. They would be cut down. They would be crawling. And people would just be shooting them. Kill. It, would, it, would be, it would be so tragic. My friend, that's what the church is like, baby Christians. Baby, goo-goo-gaga Christians, and the devils and the demons of hell mock them, laugh at them, take their family, take their city, take their call, all of this right in front of them. And it's, and it's horrifying. It's disgusting what happens to Christians in this society because they have no strength. They have no sword of the Spirit. But one, one trained Navy officer in an F-16 off of a battleship against the entire country of Iraq. They couldn't even take one down. Not even one. One trained pilot. They never shot down any of our F-16s. Are you understanding what I'm telling you right now? Just one. Just one will take out. When we dropped over Hiroshima, it was over. My friends, give me a disciple. Come on. Give me a radical, trained disciple that has a weapon in their hand that they know how to use. And let's drop some atom bombs on Jesus. But you have to make that decision. You will all be tempted in life with this. Will you preach to win crowds or preach to win disciples? You could even work with Some of you will be... In Metro Praise, the rest of you, hopefully all of you here will be in Metro Praise the rest of your life. But some of you will always work directly with me in a ministry, whether it's here in this church, as we plant other churches. You'll always be right with me. Others of you, we're going to send out. Listen to me. It doesn't matter if you're my right-hand person like a Jonathan until we go to heaven. Listen to me. You will still be tempted with this. Just because you're with a man that said he made that decision, you will have to make that decision. And it's in ways that, that, that come so subtly because we really want to win the loss, don't we? We really want them here. We really want people to go to heaven. 
And it's that subtle line between, I really want them to go to heaven. I really want people to feel comfortable here. I really want them to stay between, I'll compromise for them to stay. I'll change for them to stay. I was talking to Nancy, and I was thinking to myself, if I began to go under the, if God wouldn't have spoke that word to me, and if I was weaker in my faith, and I began to compromise, and I say, well, let's just make our service an hour. Let's do 15 minutes of praise and worship few minutes of announcements, half hour of preaching, and then a few minutes of prayer. You know what I said would begin to happen? The sheep would begin to starve. And that little bit that the goats want, the little bit that's all the grain the goat wants, you know why the goat doesn't want the full meal when he comes here? The only reason why the goat doesn't want that is because he's going to go get stuffed on the things of the world during the week. They're going to go out there and get stuffed all in the things of the world. But the sheep, this is all they have. This is the only place where Adolfo can come and get fed. This is the only place. And so if I just begin to just give you guys just a few little barleys, just a few little things of corn, you'll begin to starve. And I began to think to myself about how God said to Ezekiel, you've starved the sheep. You see, my friends, we don't want to become so secret sensitive that the disciples are no longer what we're seeking. Jesus sought disciples, not just conversions. Can I give you some of Jesus' messages about discipleship? Here's where the other 30 just come in right now. I mean, there's just so many. Let's, let's go through them quickly. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Do you know how tempted I was to say this as that last family was leaving to them as they go out the door? If this is not what you want, then it's not Jesus. It's Jesus who you don't want. We, we would recommend you find another church if we don't end on the time you want us to. Or to the one man that comes to our church who we know is not saved, and whenever we go late, he always leaves. I, I was so tempted just to rebuke him and say, Brother, if you're not willing to carry your cross and follow Jesus, you cannot come to this church and be a disciple. See, Jesus was a radical. Jesus knew how to call out people. See, in my spirit, I just didn't feel it was at the right time. But, of course, we'll say it to them individually. I just didn't want to embarrass the congregation and take time for people who didn't want it. But Jesus did things like that. And I know if I would have done it, those of you here, you wouldn't have been embarrassed. You'd have been like, amen, pastor, that's what we came to do. Why would you come into these doors unless you were not willing to be a disciple? But what do we think of church? Like, like church is so, somewhat like Walmart. You know, like you come, you can try on the clothes. And not. No, church was never meant to be a place where people decided whether or not they wanted to serve God. This is the place for those who have already decided to serve God. Somehow we started using a sacred place to now can, uh, you know, convince the goats to come in with us. The only time you see this is in Corinthians, that when the unbeliever is there, that they'll see it so much that they'll fear and dread of what their sins are being exposed in that place, and they'll repent. But whenever you see people who claim to be Christians but are like on the outside and they're doing things wrong, you begin to see them die like Anais and Sapphira. You hear Jesus say that they make him puke. You hear in Corinthians that he says, kick them out, get them out of the church. Did Jesus come to make crowds or did he come to make disciples? Jesus going on to say, Luke 14, 27, or Luke 14, 33, in the same way, 
Any one of you who does not give up everything, he cannot be my disciple. If we can't give up two hours on Sunday or three hours on Sunday, how can we be his disciple, my friends? What are you willing to give up to be a disciple of Jesus? Jesus also said to his mother and father, he rebuked his own mother and father. You know how sometimes people will be in the service, and I'm just using this as an example because it's fresh in my mind, just as an example of how people are not disciples yet they'll come to church and they want to be a part of the crowd, and it will be tempting for you to, you know, kind of consider them a part of your ministry. Don't. When we get together, my friends, as elders and deacons of this church, we don't count attendance. We count disciples. That's all we count. We're not counting the crowd. There were people here. We know them by name. We're, we're asking them to be disciples every single week. But when we sit down and we count the numbers, it is always disciples. You know why? Because counting visitors and counting attendance is so deceiving. You could think to yourself, I'm doing a great job, and you're failing and miserably in God's eyes. Imagine this. A mother says to her daughter, Let's leave church now. We have an appointment at 2 o'clock to go to Uncle Flacco's barbecue. And the mother says, we need to go now. Imagine the daughter saying back to her, mo- her mother, pointing to a person in the church, here is my mother. You can go if you want. Hello? That's what Jesus did. Jesus was preaching. They said, your mother and father are outside. He said, they, they said, come and get them. And it says right there, he said back to them, who's my mother, brother? Those who do the will of the Lord. My friends, I want to just encourage you today with everything within me. I can't say it enough. I've already been through it. And I know sometimes when you talk to the older war-torn veterans, you know, I was watching the Pacific last night. The guy came off the Battle of uh, Guadalcanal, and then he was preparing the guys for the Battle of Iwo Jima, and he was just nuts. I mean, he was so nice outside of drill camp, but in boot camp, he was just, he was the worst, like the hardest sergeant, the worst, he was so hard on them. And the reason was is because out of all the sergeants, he was the only one that had actually fought with the the Japanese in Japan. He was the only one that had gone and fought them. And it's like you may hear me like, man, why is pastor so hard on this? I mean, why don't, why don't we just compromise? I'm telling you because I've been out there and I've seen exactly, exactly what it looks like. And you don't want a ministry like that. I love the way the brother preaches it. I don't remember his name. If you remember it, Jared, you can tell me. Ten shekels in a shirt. If we don't know, it's okay. Email me if you want it. But the bottom line is, is the American church has sold out their ministry for ten shekels in a shirt. Because you look at that prophet, the son of Levi, rather not a prophet, but a son of Levi, he's brought into a home. They say, you be a priest unto us. You serve us here. And they didn't want to serve God. They were going to serve false gods. But they wanted a Levite to be their priest. And he said, well, I'm not sure. And then the guy said, I'll give you ten shekels and a shirt if you'll be my priest. And he was there. He, he went and became their priest. Doesn't that kind of sound like the American church to you? Just ten shekels and a shirt. That's all it took. That's all it took to get Dylan out of the ministry. That's what the devil's saying. Hey, if I just give, if I just give Dylan ten shekels and a shirt, if I just bribe him with a nice house in Florida, a good paycheck, give him benefits for his family, that's all Dylan needs. Demons, you ever read the Screw Tape letters? 
It's about how demons tempt Christians and, and the mind that they have, that they'll find your weakness. And if your weakness is all I want in ministry is just to be happy, and if I can preach, I'll still, I mean, I, that's perfect. And you'll sell out your ministry for ten shekels in a shirt. That's why I've always wondered, I've always wondered, why is it that Jesus doesn't know how to do simple math? Yes, simple math. There's 300 million people in America. There's 5.7 billion people out of America. How come Jesus keeps calling everybody to Iowa? How come Jesus keeps calling everybody to Indiana? Why are all the Bible college grads continually called to America? I don't understand. Has Jesus forgot how to do math? No. What it is is that most Bible college graduates, all they want is ten shekels in a shirt. Once you graduate, just give me ten shekels in a shirt. I'll go to the youth conventions, the pastor's conventions, and I'll talk about my crowds. How many are you running, brother? Oh, we got about a hundred in the youth group. Woo! Ta-da! Wow! What do you guys do? Well, let me tell you, man, I, I have a UFC fighting ring in, in the middle of my youth center, and then we have fights, and then we have this big screen for the video. Oh, that's what we do. And then we do these series on, you know, uh, the circus style for Jesus, who wants to be a clown for Jesus, and we dress up as clowns. I'm just exaggerating a little bit. But that's, oh, wow. And, oh, let me tell you about our lighting system. Oh, let me tell you. We have this, oh, pyrotechnics. Oh, in our pastor comes up to the stage. Oh, the, the pyrotechnics go off. That's great. Wonderful. You won't go to hell with having pyrotechnics in your church. But let me ask you a question. How many disciples do you have? Uh, 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 well, we have small groups. Well, what do you do at your small group? Well, at our small group, we have this and this and this and this and that and this and that. Oh, blah, 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 blah. So you have this whole crowd that comes to your youth service, and then the way you try to get deeper with them is you have another bribery thing at your small group. Then who's really, oh, the, the really my disciple are my leadership, my leadership team. Oh, well, how do you get to be on the leadership team? Oh, you just show up. Go through all the crowd. Yeah, they show up to all the crowd, and then if they do that successfully, and they don't kill or murder anybody, and we check them out, then they go into our leadership. I'm being, and, I, and if anybody's listening to me by, by webcast and you're saying, Pastor, I just told you that was my youth group. Listen to me. I hear that from every youth group. I have not met another youth pastor that says to me, we have leadership requirements before anybody can become a leader. Here's the classes they have to attend. Here's the things they have to do. And then once in that place, we keep them accountable. And we don't count the crowd. We count disciples. I've never met another youth pastor that says to me, I have about ten. I have about ten. You know why? Because if he was counting disciples, that's what he would be saying. Yeah, we have about five. I love telling that to when I talk to people from other churches. How many do you have in your church? Oh, we have about fifty now. We have about fifty. Really? That's no. Now I'm not talking to crowd. I'm talking my disciples. We know them by name. They're involved in the process. Eleven have already graduated. Twenty-eight are in a 201 book. And then the other ones are in a 101 right now. Those are our disciples. The crowd, oh, well, well over 100. Well over 100. Not counting crowds. Counting disciples. And disciples you put on the line. 
You ask them, are you here for the right reasons? You ask them, are you willing to deny your father, mother, brother, and sister? Disciples, you ask to pick up the cross and follow Jesus. Jesus' end goal was not conversions, but disciples. He said to Peter and his brother Andrew, come follow me, and I will make you fishermen of men. I would love for that to be the altar call. If we're still going to do traditional altar calls, let that be our altar call. Not if there's anybody hurting, anybody here stubbed their spiritual toe and you just need a spiritual pick-me-up, a little John 3.16 Jesus juice in you. Let's get you shot up with some Holy Ghost Novocaine so you don't feel the pain anymore. No, I, I would love if we're going to at least do altar calls, let's do altar calls like this. If anybody wants to follow Jesus and be a radical disciple for Jesus and go out and make other disciples come forward now. That was Jesus' call of discipleship. Number four, Jesus rebuked cities, leaders, and people. Sometimes people say, well, all Jesus rebuked were the religious people. No, Jesus rebuked his own disciples. Sometimes people say, well, Jesus only rebuked people who wanted to follow God. No, he didn't. He rebuked leaders. He rebuked politicians. Jesus was a rebuking man in his preaching. When you preach, you'll have to do the same. You have to rebuke in your preaching. You're just not here to tell everybody Jesus loves him. That is an idol of Jesus. That is not Jesus. Anybody who says Jesus would not do such and such and it doesn't line up with the Bible, that is an idol. That is idolatry. They are worshiping a false Jesus. The real Jesus rebuked people because he loved them. The Bible says in Proverbs, open rebuke is better than hidden love. Amen? Luke 13:32. he replied, go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today, tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. That's what people said. That's what he said when people said the alderman didn't give you permission to preach out here. People have always come. Did you get permission from the alderman? Did you ask the alderman? Listen to me, sister. The only thing I'm going to ask the alderman to do is repent and be born again. That's the only thing I'm asking him to do in Jesus' name. That's it. We'll follow the laws of the land and give the Caesar what is Caesar. But last time I checked, I lived in America, and there's freedom of speech here. And the last time I checked, the drug dealer in the west side didn't ask the, uh, the alderman if he could sell drugs there. They were trying to tell him, well, Herod says this. Herod says that. He said, go tell that fox. He called him a name. He said, go tell that fox. I'll drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I'll reach my goal. Praise the Lord. Jesus was a name caller. He called, I'm being serious. And his favorite name to call people was animal names. He called people foxes. He called them snakes. He called them vipers. And he called the Samaritan a dog. I'm being honest with you. Jesus called people names. It's okay to call people names if you want to preach like Jesus. Y'all looking at me crazy. I'm being honest. If it's not okay to call people names and Jesus was wrong, Jesus called people names. See, what we need to teach our children, and as we need to teach in social etiquette, is that name calling is wrong only if it's not true, if it's not done in love, if it doesn't edify or build up the person ultimately. Jesus calling him a fox was ultimately to better him so he can know who he really was. If your child is eating and food's going all over their face and you say, stop eating like a pig, they need to learn from that. It's not that you're being rude and disrespectful to them. And if you act sneaky and if you act uh, uh, poisonous, it's okay for me to say so-and-so acts like a snake. 
My friends, Jesus will blow your mind. I can't even believe some of you are looking at me right now like Jesus is crazy. Do you still want to follow him? There's not too many better options on the table here, I'm telling you. You don't want me to tell you what what, uh, Muhammad did and what Buddha did and what Krishna did. Jesus is still loving, but he knew how to tell it as it really was. I do want you to see this in Luke 37. Because when he did deal with religious people, he minced no words. He was a bold preacher. You don't get crucified because you tell everybody I love you. You don't get crucified because you're everybody's friend. He was a revolutionary. Luke eleven thirty seven, And that doesn't scare me, by the way. I would rather you have wildfire than no fire. Amen? I would rather you come to me going, man, I just called somebody a rabbit, and I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me. You know what I'm saying? Okay, let's go work on it. I just called this person, a, you know, a bore. Okay, let's work on that. I would rather you go out and do it the wrong way than to be so timid that you never preach like Jesus. Just preach like Jesus. Amen? When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash his uh, did not wash before the meal was surprised. So now he's with the Pharisee. He's inside this guy's house. And now the Pharisee is judging him. Look at how Jesus deals with this man. Then the Lord said to him, Now then you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, name number one. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is... But Give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint and rue and other kinds of herbs, but you gather, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the lather without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees. Here's the second woe. Because you love the most important seat in the synagogues and greeted in the marketplaces. Third, woe to you because you are, you are like unmarked graves, second name he calls them, which uh, men walk over without knowing. One of the experts in the law answered, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. <laughs> I love this. I got to love this because this is, you know, like there's parts of Jesus' personality. There's, every one of us has a part of Jesus' personality that comes easy to us, and there's other parts that come not so easy to us, okay? This woe unto you comes very easy unto, unto me, okay? Some of you, you're not confrontational. You're more like John chapter 8, forgiving of the adulterous woman. That comes really easy unto you, okay? This comes so easy to me. Like Jesus, I'd be slapping Jesus high five, and I'd be like, Jesus, I feel where you're coming from. Pass the mic here. Let me start preaching at him right now. I'm telling you, man, I would be tag teaming with Jesus. <laughs> and I just, I love it because when I've done these things, here are the types of things that you hear. You've got to understand the context of this. The Pharisees were a certain type of denomination of Jews, but experts in the law weren't necessarily Pharisees or Sadducees. They kind of sometimes were just like non-denominational. They were just like their own thing. And while... This expert in the law is hearing the Pharisees getting rebuked. I mean, you, you've ever been in a room where somebody starts to get rebuked? It's like it becomes embarrassing, a little awkward, right? And so this dude is probably, his face is turning a little, a little red, and he's like, hold on, Jesus. Don't you know you're also insulting us? Now, look at Jesus. Because the dude brings attention to himself, Jesus now starts to rebuke him. 
It's like if the guy would have just stayed quiet, he would have been okay. But since he's like, man, you're insulting me, it's like, no, I'm rebuking you now. One of the experts in the law answered him, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, and you, experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they themselves hardly carry, and you yourselves not one one finger to help them. Woe to you because you built tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testified that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you built the tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some whom they will kill, and others who they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law. It's like now he's all about them. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourself have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law wanted to give him the keys to the city. Is that what it says? When Jesus left there, the Pharisees bought his book at Walmart for twelve ninety nine. Is that what it says? When Jesus left there, the Pharisees invited him onto the Oprah Winfrey show and Larry King Live because he was so easy to get along with. When Jesus left there, after he just totally wrecked the whole place verbally, like how he did physically destroying the temple with his hands, as he just brought everything down with his words, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. My friends, Jesus was confrontational. Will you please preach like Jesus? Just preach like Jesus. Say the words Jesus said. He was dealing with specific problems. Deal with these the, the problems of today the way Jesus dealt with the problems of his day. If you see people acting religious in your church, if you see people around that have deceived themselves, say, woe unto you. You do this thinking you'll get that, but really this is who you are. And if somebody pipes up and says, hey, you're insulting us also, say, I've got a couple things to share with you. Do you want to preach like Jesus or do you want to preach like Barney? Do you want, who do you want to preach like? Y'all are saying it all wimpy. Who do you want to preach like? Help us to preach like Jesus. Holy Spirit. Mark 8, 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Here is how you settle staff problems and problems with leadership. Anytime they disagree with you, you look at them and say, Satan, get behind me. No, I'm kidding. No, but honestly, here's how Jesus dealt with his staff. If you opposed him and it was a God thing, it was a God thing, He would say, get behind me, Satan. Was Jesus pretty mean? Was he mean, Lauren? But by the standards of this world, he would be considered mean, wouldn't he? That would be mean. But was Jesus mean? No, he wasn't mean. If people consider you mean, does that make you mean? If you consider me a millionaire, does that make me a millionaire? I'm telling you the truth. Come on, everybody think about this. 
If you consider me mean, does that make me mean? If somebody reads this and says, we think Jesus is mean, does that make him mean? Where does our standard of morality come from? Other people and their opinions or the word of God? So when we judge meanness, harshness, when we judge these types of things in the church, do we judge it by what Barney, a televangelism preacher, and some seeker-sensitive leaders have said uh, in their leadership books? Is that how we judge how to make friends and win people by Bill Carnegie? Is that how we judge pastors by being mean? No, we judge by the Word of God. If you hear a pastor call a name to someone who's not living right or someone in their church, ask yourself this question. Are they using that name to expose their sin, to edify them, and to give them the opportunity to change? Or are they just demoralizing them? When somebody says to another person, get behind me, Satan, in a staff meeting, or to you, are they doing it because they disvalue you, they don't believe in you, or do they honestly believe that you're being used by the devil. When you hear a pastor or a leader preach against politicians and against the wickedness that they do as they try to thwart the things of God, whether they stand for things that are immoral like abortion or homosexuality, or whether or not they just try to thwart the things of God and you hear godly leadership preach against them, ask yourself the question, are they doing this because they disrespect and dishonor authority, or are they doing it? as Jesus did it, to call these politicians and men to account because they themselves are accountable to a higher law, which is the law of God. So would you please do that before you judge other pastors? And I'll tell you right now, everybody look up at me. I don't care if half those signed guys don't even think I'm going to heaven. At this state of the world, I'll take them signed guys over half the TV ministers right now because at least they're telling people, you better get right because Jesus Christ is coming back. I do not know who people think Jesus is coming back like. My friend, read the book of Revelation, and if you are not terrified, you have no idea who is coming back. I would much rather those guys be almost too harsh in the sense of like, man, nobody's getting in, so that people can really understand they will be judged. Now, I'm not talking about Westboro Baptists saying that God kills our soldiers. I'm talking about I know good brothers in Mardi Gras that hold those signs, and, and they truly want salvations. They truly want so Some of them joined with us during Mardi Gras. You'll see them around us at different times. I'm telling you, I'd rather have them than seeker-sensitive people that can never talk about the message of God. So be very careful when you talk about those people. Whenever you see them, thank God that they're out there, even if they don't think you're saved. I remember one of them didn't think one of our Bible college students was saved, and some of them were a little too harsh. But I'm telling you, even in these last days, I would rather that than this seeker-sensitive garbage that's damning souls to hell, my friend. But obviously we know there's a balance between Dr. Angry and Dr. Feelgood. It's Dr. Truth. Amen. Number five, following right behind that point, Jesus always promoted God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. So what was Jesus' ultimate goal in rebuking Herod? His love and his mercy. What was Jesus' ultimate goal behind rebuking Peter? God's love and mercy. What was his ultimate goal behind rebuking the Pharisees? His love and mercy. John 8, 7 which we know is a variant to the New Testament, possibly not original to the book of John, but most still believe it's true to Jesus' life. And so I still quote out of the first verses of John chapter 8, if you have already learned that in your 
study that this is not true to the book of John. That's okay. I still believe it's historically accurate to Jesus that they probably felt best to put in John 8. But when Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger, when then they, excuse me, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. What does that mean? That means that civil judgment, the judgment of the Jews that would lead to stoning the people, Jesus was now saying that no one is worthy of bringing civil judgment upon anybody anymore because everybody is in sin themselves. Does that mean a government cannot bring civil punishment? No, a government still can bring civil punishment according to Romans, but we cannot bring civil punishment based on God's moral law anymore because we now know we all fail at the moral law. If you've ever thought an angry thought, the Bible says you're a murderer. If you've ever thought a lustful thought, now you yourself an adulterer. So what are we going to do, stone each other? We're going to have a big rock fight, aren't we? That was Jesus' point. So why was he telling them that? Did he promote sin? No, he was promoting the love of God. He was saying sin triumphs, I mean love triumphs over judgment. Luke 7:34, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. If you've been listening to my debate on alcohol and if Jesus drank it, this thing would make no sense unless he was drinking the same wine that they were getting drunk off of. Jesus drank their wine of that day. That was common. And it says here that he did it to the point that people called him a drunkard. Could they accuse you of a drunkard? Absolutely not. You never even go around alcohol. You don't even touch it. You're not even in bars. Jesus was around the places they were drinking it, and he was drinking it with them. He was so close to these people that they called him a glutton and a drunkard. Does that mean now today I give you permission to drink wine and go to bars? No. But it doesn't mean it's sin for those who do. There are Christians today all over Europe and in Australia where bars and meeting places are common for them, and they go and they drink and they preach to the sinners, and if people wanted to mock them, they could call them drunkards. For us, it would be us going out to uh, Bourbon Street. People could call us, you know, revelers along with everybody else, and maybe somebody said that to you. You're like, why are you out here? And then they say back to you, why are you here? Jesus was always around sinners to the point where it slandered his character. You and I cannot be afraid to get our hands dirty in ministry. Just because people say it, it doesn't mean it's true. Just because you see me in Boys Town sitting across the street from an open homosexual does not mean I'm a homosexual. And I remember being in Boys Town doing that and people looking at me as if I was one. And I even caught an eye from one of the people, and then the guy that I was out to dinner with said to me, they think you're gay and they're hitting on you now. I said, that's okay, because I love you, and I've come to be here with you and share a meal with you. Don't be ashamed of what other people say about you as you extend the hand of God's mercy. Don't put down the Christians in Europe and Australia who have Bible studies and drink beer. That is not a sin. Jesus did that. Jesus did things that in those days the Jewish people thought was compromise and sin. And yet he wasn't sinning. He was doing things that were perfectly acceptable, but other people hated it. Do you know that when you do things that other religious people hate, they'll want to put you down and call you names? But do not let that change the way you know you are and as you serve people. John 21:17. 
The third time he said to them, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. What was Jesus saying to Peter? I can still forgive you. I can still use you. Matthew 26, 50 is to Judas. When Judas came to betray Jesus, what did he call him? You betrayer, you son of the devil, you dog, you snake, you viper. No, because his ultimate goal was love for Judas. Actually, Judas had been called all of those things already before. But he says in John 26, 50, Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Do what you came for. How, how many of you could come up with a different name for Judas other than friend? But Jesus called him friend. Why? Because Jesus always promoted God's love, his mercy, and forgiveness. And lastly, Jesus demonstrated his message with signs and wonders. Matthew 4.24, news about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Matthew 8.16, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. My friends, Jesus preached with signs and wonders. Jesus displayed his message with signs and wonders. He didn't just say, here's my new teaching. Here's my new philosophy. He said, shikaboomba, now listen to what I have to say. He said, here's the proof in the pudding. My friends, can we desire to do signs and wonders? Can we pray for the sick and have faith for them to be healed? I appreciate healing meetings. We'll always have those here at this church. We will always have special services where it's dedicated towards that. But how about doing it out on the streets? It was funny because Lauren and I were out there, and some guy, you know, was on a wheelchair. He kind of wheeled by us. We talked to him, and then he wheeled away. And Lauren was like, man, I feel like I should have prayed for him. And I said, that's okay. You can pray for him. Go back. And we just didn't feel it's the right time, so we kept walking. And then I said, you know what? Sometimes when I come out here to the inner city, it's like I want to preach the gospel to them first because it's almost like they don't even have faith for any sign or wonder. You know, they, they don't even believe in the real Jesus of the Bible. So it's almost like you have to preach repentance to them to soften their heart so that their faith can build up. And you hear that all the time with the faith preachers, <clears throat> excuse me, especially like the Smith Wigglesworth and, and uh, all of these awesome men of God, John G. Lake, that the people dealt with so much doubt that they would have to preach faith and faith oral Roberts day after day. And sometimes they would say it wouldn't be to the last week of the healing revival or it wasn't to the last days that people's faith finally built up. And then that's why Alexander Dowie, uh, Dowie and others started healing rooms and John G. Lake because they said people come with so much doubt and unbelief, you've got to just keep them with you for weeks, you know, just keep sowing the word into them. Believe the word, believe the word. And actually out of that, the word of faith movement came up came to the came to be and so 
I said, that's kind of where I'm at. She's like, well, you know, I just really want to pray from Bill Johnson. And his book was actually saying do it the opposite. You know, pray first for the sick to be healed. And I'm totally with that. I think that's awesome, especially like in India and places where they're ready to see it demonstrated. But I said, out here we don't really see it. And then she's like, okay. And then I said, well, let's just try it right now. So here comes this guy. He's like hobbling next to us. Literally, while we're walking on the sidewalk, this guy comes hobbling next to us. And, and then, like, all enthusiastically, like, we asked him, excuse me, sir, excuse me, can we pray for you? We want to, we believe God can heal you. No, I don't want any prayer. And he just kept walking. Remember that? And it's like, okay, the people of this generation are hard-hearted. They won't even let you pray for them. But we still, we have a God that can heal them. We have a God that can heal them. And so my biggest pet peeve is please don't give up on praying for people. And at the same time, don't go off and say somebody's healed when they're not. It is so embarrassing when we're at healing meetings and some super excited Christian is like, Gary's healed. Look at him. He doesn't have to walk with the crutches anymore as everybody's holding his hand and he's limping up to the front of the stage. You know what I'm saying? Listen to me. We don't have to do that. That is so embarrassing. You know, it's like, or or like the special needs person. It's like he got healed of his headache. Here he comes. You know, my headache. Listen to me. That's awesome. But let's give a real testimony. Let's give a real testimony. Let's let's not pick the dude up out the wheelchair and kind of walk with him like he does in therapy every week. He can do that. Okay. Let's let's watch him bounce around a place. Amen. Let's call a healing what a healing is. Like, it's undeniable. I am sure to the world we look so re-re when we do that in our healing meetings. Here's Johnny. He's like, okay, I'm better now. Come on. Well, look at him. He's, he's looking more normal. And it's just like it's so embarrassing. I'll tell you why. Because then, like, I totally watched this at this one healing meeting. Here comes Hobbelong. He comes up there. He testifies, I've been healed. And then he hobbles along. But I kept watching him. This is where it gets embarrassing. It's sad. Because then, like, everybody's done shaking his hand and everything. And then Adam was with me. And then what happens? He hobbles back to his car. He keeps his crutches. Come on, my friends. Why are we doing that? Amen. Let's let's believe. Dude, if you have to convince somebody they're healed, they're not healed. Okay? If you have to convince them, really, is it that bad? Okay, you're healed now. Here's our person. They're healed. Let's get somebody that's really healed. Let's get some real healing, some real miracles. I would rather see one real miracle in my life than to see a thousand fake ones. Okay? Have I seen the blinded eye open, deaf ears? No, but if I see it one time, dude, that, that's enough for me. I mean, God is so powerful. Do I want to see it more than one time? Yes, but I'm not going to go around calling everything that's not that a healing. And why is it when people get healed, they can never come back and testify themselves? Listen to me. If you really got that blind guy, because I, you know, I just love when people get healed on the streets. I love it. And they say, this guy was blind and he had one eye and this and that. And, and, and it's like, okay, why is he not here right now? What did he do? He just, well, he just went home. He's, Come on, dude. If the guy sincerely, I'm not trying to discourage some of you have said, but if you really got, don't you think you'd be jumping and praising God going home with the students that healed you? Don't you think you'd be coming to this church? So really when we're saying people got healed, what is really happening? Maybe God is healing an arm, a headache a back pain but listen to me when genuine blind eyes open deaf ears they will come to church the next week they will testify themselves 
Now, th- there can be times, and we've heard this in history, you know, where people get healed and then they deny God or they forget about it. But I'm, I, I want to look for real, genuine healings where this dude got healed, he's in the church, he's testifying before the church, and it's obvious they are healed. Is that okay if I just ask God for real signs and wonders? Amen. Let's all stand up together. That made you guys laugh a little bit, didn't it? How many have seen things like that? It's just come on. And to me, I don't feel bad. You might say, you might say, well, Joe, uh, well, you know, other people, they see more miracles. Listen to me. I have been to every major healing evangelist meeting you can imagine, and I've never seen them do it. I'm telling you, miracles in America are rare, are rare, and we need to get hungry to see them become commonplace. I'm glad Bill Johnson and other people out there are making them more common. But before I condemn you or condemn myself because we're not doing what Bill Johnson does, let's continue to seek God and ask him for it. Amen? Just seek him. But don't condemn yourself because I'm tired. I've been in Betty Hinn meetings, and almost everybody I saw in a wheelchair came out in a wheelchair. And, and they went back and have researched these healing evangelists, and so many of them, like I said, don't you know that these people go to therapy? They do. They get up out of wheelchairs. They do things in therapy, okay? So many of these things have come out to be frauds. And I love Benny Hinn. I do. But so many of them have come out to be frauds. Don't believe everything that comes down the road. Seek genuine miracles, genuine, genuine signs and wonders. Since I'm on this right now, let me just talk about this false prophecy thing. There's words of encouragement, okay? There's a word I could say to Adam, it's your birthday. Hey, Jesus loves you. There's new blessings, new things coming your way, okay? But if I start putting God on that, and then I go a little step further, listen to me. Why is it always God is saying the same thing? You're going to make disciples. You're awesome. You're radical. You're going to do this. Those are just words of encouragement. Let's be careful to what we call words of wisdom and knowledge. Let's be very careful. Because a word of wisdom and knowledge would be something that is unknown to anybody else or to, to anyone that doesn't know you. It's unknown. It's not just God blesses you and has a plan for your life and he's going to use you and I sense you're going to do this and do that. All of you are going to do certain things and I could go down the road and pray for every one of you. Just be careful about how you receive words and what you call those words, okay? There's words of encouragement, just like when I encourage you, like if Lauren would come up, God bless her, you know she's going to be a mighty prophetess, all of this, she's going to sing songs for you, that's wonderful, okay? But then there's the sign and the wonder, like, I see you doing this at this specific time, at this specific place. Or you have done these specific things, these specific things, and God wants you to know these specific things are dealt with. You get what I'm saying? I know that God has used many people in this church to speak words over your life. I'm not discounting them. I'm just saying let's just make sure we guard our heart and we call what's a word a word. Because every time I come up, I have a word. Every time I pray for you, I have a word. It's just I don't want to be so spiritual and kooky. I hear the, I hear the Lord. I hear him speaking. And this is what he's telling me. He says, and then go on with something, you know. But sometimes I'm telling you, it, it, it can be still, you know, prophecy edifies, builds up. So it can be prophetic. Like you might just need to hear God loves you at that time. So I don't want to take away from that. I just want some, how many just want some genuine signs and wonders? 
Man, I just want somebody to come in here and say, dude, you did this last night. I know exactly what you did, and God loves you, so get up here and make it right. And you know what? You're going to be three weeks in this place, and you're going to meet this person, and this is what's going to happen to you. I'm going to tie your little hand with the belt. Those are the things we're looking for. So I know all of us can experience that. That's my whole point. I want you to get hungry for that. I just don't want us to get content with saying Bob gets healed as we bring up the limping man, and then we say, oh, we all had words for each other because we all told each other we're going to be apostles to the nations and missionaries, and we all love Jesus, and we're all going to live pure and get over the past of our childhood, and we're all going to be bold, radical people now, okay? I want, I want there to be some real words, some things that you write down and say, dude, how did he know that? And that must have been, that was God speaking to me. You know, and, and it couldn't just be like just simple, like it was for me, like like yesterday. I didn't see crowds. I think I seek disciples. And then in that service, more people have got up and because our church is bigger now, so more people get up than I've ever seen. And God says, "That's I told you that," or a dream, and you see it very clear. Listen to me. If you need somebody else to interpret your dream, then it wasn't a dream from God. Let me help you with that. Let me just make that real clear to you. If I was in Ronald McDonald outfit. And, and Jonathan was flying on a plane, and then a Bible came into the scene, and you don't know what it means. Let me help you out. Nobody knows what it means. Okay? Nobody knows what it means. But I have a couple numbers you can call, and they'll send you holy water as well, and they'll tell you what it means. Okay? Those type of people come by the dime a dozen. They'll tell you whatever you want to hear what it means. Okay? The only time people need to interpret your dreams is when you're an unbeliever. That's the only time you'll find it in the Bible, when you are an unbeliever. Is there any unbelievers here? No. So that means if God gives you a dream, he can tell you exactly what that dream means. And if that dream to you seems a little far out, seems a little just, I don't know if I can receive that, then you just run it by somebody else, and they'll just pray for a confirmation of what you got as an interpretation. Amen? Praise the Lord. We having fun today. Amen. Let's have Adam come up on the guitar, and let's just ask Jesus to help us preach like him. Jesus, we want to preach like you. What a leadership message to preach like Jesus. God, I know that it can seem a little extreme for us, but, Lord, you were extreme. That's how you lived, Lord. You lived an extreme life. You were extreme, God, about your message. You were extreme about your love and forgiveness. You were extreme about your friendships. You reached out to people. You were extreme in your signs and wonders. No one, no one has ever done what you did upon this earth. Oh, God. And yet you told us to go out and do even greater things. What a challenge. What a challenge. Just right now as Adam just plays, just seek your heart right now and ask God to make you this type of a preacher. A preacher that's not afraid to be called a wine-bibber and a glutton, a drunkard and a glutton. A preacher that's not afraid to preach confrontational. A preacher that's not afraid to forgive. A preacher that's not afraid to call names. Jesus, make us your preachers today. You are the original. We're all just imitating you, Jesus. We're all just imitating you. You're the original. 
We're just copies of the original. Make us like you. Make us like you, O oh God. Hallelujah. I hear a word of encouragement for some of you here today. There's two extremes that I believe you guys can fall into. One is the one where you're so holy that you won't allow yourself to be called a wine-bibber, a drunkard, or a, a glutton because you won't get close to sinners. Listen to me. You've got to be able to get close to sinners. That doesn't mean you lose your testimony and you sin, but you have got to open up your heart. Otherwise, you'll become so inclusive in the church, you'll only live in this little Christian subculture. For an example, me getting my hair cut the other day, I invited a guy and his girlfriend, he lives with her, the guy was cutting my hair, to come to my house and play the Wii with us. Come on, I said I'll come over to his house. Now this is not for new believers, but these are for people who want to go out and be, make a difference like Jesus. What if I go over there and they're smoking weed? As a matter of fact, when I was in Tahoe, I hooked up with an unbeliever. We began snowboarding. When we were out snowboarding, he and a bunch of others smoked weed. I'm not saying I chose to be around a weed smoker. I think that's against the law. That's crossing the line. But what would someone have said about me? Oh, man, this dude's getting high. Joe's with them. And as a matter of fact, there was a guy there who was on a snowmobile doing his thing, and he, he put me and the whole group with them. And what's that first thing that comes out in my heart? Oh, hold on. Let me clarify here. That, that's not me. That, that's, I'm really here doing something else. Kind of like that with that gay guy in the restaurant. It's kind of like I wanted to look to the other person hitting on me and go, Hey, hold on. I just want to clarify here. I'm the straight one. He's the gay one. And I'm just I'm helping him. Jesus didn't have to do that. Jesus knew how to get close to the world, not in his behavior, but in his heart for them, his love. And he took the insults for it. That's one extreme. I ask that each one of you would be open to friendships. Of course you have to guard your heart. Of course you can't do what they do. There's boundaries. But I'm asking God for true friendships. And then the other extreme is that some of you, you're afraid to confront. You're afraid to do what Jesus did. Jesus made enemies. Jesus made people furious because you just want to be everybody's friend. You just want to hang out all the time. You just want to be their buddy. You, you really don't want to make anybody upset. You, you want them to always walk away from you going, man, that person is such a great guy. And if at any time they walk away saying that so-and-so is not a great guy, you always feel it's your job to go up to them and say, hey, you're not, you're not a good Christian because good Christians wouldn't make people mad. Come on, some of you are like that. You'll judge people. You'll say, man, you know, pastor so-and-so, he makes people mad. He's not really a good pastor. Other pastors don't make anybody mad. You're not understanding who Jesus was. Jesus made people mad all the time. He didn't look for it. He didn't act as a jerk personally. But his message offended people. Some of you need that spirit of confrontation that Jesus had. Hallelujah. I'm coming your way. I'm coming your way. I'm coming your way. Oh, I'm coming your way. I'm coming your way. 
I'm coming your way. Jesus, I'm coming your way. I'm coming your way. I'm coming your way. I'm preaching your way. I'm preaching your way. I'm preaching your way. I'm preaching your way. Come on, one more time. I'm preaching. I'm preaching your way. I'm preaching your way. Amen. Just as Adam plays right now, I just want us all to get hungry for spiritual gifts in this place. The Bible says eagerly seek and desire spiritual gifts. We believe God for the genuine. We believe God for genuine signs and wonders. We want genuine signs and wonders that lead people to repentance, that bring about conversion. Because the signs and the wonder are nothing without people converting. So God, we pray for miracles to lead to people's salvation. We pray for miracles to lead to a nation believing in God again, coming back to the Lord. Oh God, I want to see blind eyes open. I want to see the lame walk. Give us faith, God, through your word. God, I'm tired of trying to earn it.